Welcome to the Everyday Ultra Podcast, a show designed to help you level up your training, crush your races, and ultimately become a better endurance athlete every single day. Whether you're an endurance athlete as a hobby or someone who wants to be the best in the sport, this is the show for you. I'm your host, Joe Corsion, and thank you so much for listening. Now, let's get into it. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Everyday Ultra Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Corsione, and I'm pumped for this episode because we are talking all about the race that is coming up this Saturday as of this recording, which is the Black Canyon 100K. If you've been listening to this podcast over the last few months, you've probably heard in different interviews and even on my solo cast episodes that this is the race that I am training for next, and I will be towing the line this Saturday in Arizona at the Black Canyon 100K, which is a golden ticket race, super, super competitive. And yes, I'm going for the golden ticket and really, really want to uh, shock the world out there. It's going to be super, super awesome. So um, this episode is actually going to be a two-part episode. So um, we have a lot of content to cover in here, so I'm splitting it up into two parts to make it more digestible. This episode here, what you're listening to, is going to go into um, my training regimen for the Black Canyon 100K, my strategy for the race itself, and then also myself and uh, a co-host, Lindsay McDonald, are going to go over the uh, tips on the course, uh, a course layout, an overview of the course, what to expect, what to do right, what not to do right, things to look out for, um, all the strategy that goes behind the actual race itself from a general perspective in there as well. So if you are racing the race this weekend or if you're listening to this in the future and are racing this uh, or training for this race at a certain time, I'm hoping this episode brings value to you. Or if you're just overall curious about the Black Canyon 100K and what it takes to race it, what it takes to train for it, this is the episode for you. Part two is going to be a little bit more of a deep dive into the actual 2023 race, where we're going to go through the picks on the men's and the women's side of the field, kind of doing more of like an ESPN Sports Center kind of commentary analysis on the field itself. Um, and shout out to Single Track for really revolutionizing this space in trail running. Uh, We wanted to add to the conversation and make our own picks and takes on the field itself. And so uh, in the second part of the episode, we're going to go more into the deep dive analytics of the field itself. So it's going to be super, super exciting. Before we jump into this episode, I do want to give one big shout out, and that is to Zach Bitter. And so uh, for those who are unfamiliar with Zach Bitter, Zach Bitter is, uh, he's a former world record holder for fastest 100 mile time and most miles ran in 24 hours. Um, He's been featured on multiple podcasts. He's a runner for ultra. He's just an incredible athlete and one of the best ultra marathon uh, athletes of our time. And he has been my coach throughout not only this entire training block for Black Canyon, but for a little over a year now. And because of him, I've not only been able to get ready for Black Canyon, but I've been able to really, really uh, throw my hat in competitive races, uh, most recently finishing 10th male at the Havelina 100 2022, which is known as one of the most competitive ultras out there. Um, What's super cool about Zach is he is a coach, not just to me, but to many other athletes, including yourself, if that is what interests you. And so if you're looking for a coach or even a training plan um, to work with, I suggest uh, using Zach Bitter's coaching or training plan options. Um, A question that I actually got for this episode was, how do you build your training plans? And the simple answer is, 
I don't build my training plans. I actually uh, use Zach's training plan, which he curates for me. Um, so you can have him personalize plans specific to your own schedule, your own stress levels, your own work schedule, your training goals, your injury history, everything like that. He comes up with a personally tailored plan for that. Or if you just wanted a pre-made training plan that goes based off the distance you're running, your time frame to train, and your experience level, then he also has pre-made training plans as well. And I think this is just such an important thing that people overlook when it comes to training for an ultra is they might rip up a training plan off of online totally for free. But if that training plan doesn't take into account uh, that your experience, the time frame that you have to build up for this thing and your everyday variables that make up that training plan, it's really, really hard to get the best results, not only optimally, but safely, right? We don't want to get injured. And Zach, uh, man, his coaching and his training plans truly do that for you. So I can't recommend Zach enough for uh, your coaching and training plan needs. If you're interested in a training plan option, go to ZachBitter.com slash training hyphen plans. Or if you're interested in his more one-on-one personalized coaching, go to ZachBitter.com slash coaching. Man, Zach has helped me get tons, tons ready for Black Canyon, which I'm sure I'm going to go into this episode, but I wanted to give a shout out to that right away. Also too, really, really quickly, shout out to the Patreon community, which has just launched. Um, and I want to shout out some of our first members, um, our golden ticket members who do get a shout out on the podcast. And that is Brian Peterson at Wolf Runner on Instagram and also Benjamin Holmgren at Benjamin Holmgren on Instagram. And then also too, I want to give a shout out to some of our first two members who aren't golden ticket members, but also two new community members, which is Jessica Maurice and Naftali Tesler. Jessica, Naftali, Benjamin, and Brian, thank you so much for hopping on the Everyday Ultra community. If you want to hop in the Patreon group where you get a live call with me once a month, you get to connect with all the other amazing Everyday Ultra members and people who are just as obsessed with becoming a better endurance athlete as you are, head to patreon.com slash everydayultra. And for the price of just a gel a month, you can get access to this amazing community. So I hope to see you there. Our first call is the last Tuesday of February at 5 p.m. MST. get to ask me anything hang out with the squad it's going to be amazing so hope to see you on there all right now let's get into this amazing episode talking about the black canyon 100k so uh, for those who are unfamiliar with the black canyon 100k like i mentioned in the beginning of the podcast it is a 62 mile point to point race here in arizona um it goes all the way from meyer arizona which is kind of in the middle of nowhere, Arizona, north of Phoenix, and it goes straight down all the way to about northern Phoenix-ish, like this, kind of like the city limits, more or less. I I think so, at least. But it's a point-to-point track, net downhill that's just a kind of screaming downhill in the beginning, and then it kind of Uh, climbs a little bit towards the end but it's a fast race it's a hot race you know being February here and uh, yeah it's going to be super fun and as we know it's a golden ticket race as well so it's super competitive we'll go into more of like the course details and kind of like the race details and everything uh, at the tail end of this specific episode but I want to dive into my training plan for the Black Canyon 100k and I know I've got a lot of listener questions in so I want to address that too so um, in terms of the timing of what I took to train for this race right I guess actually before I go into the time Let me tell you about my goals for this race. So my goal for this race is a few different things. The first thing is I want to get a golden ticket for this race. I want to place in the top two, nail, or wherever that golden ticket lands if it rolls down um, so I can get an entry into Western States. That was my goal going to Javelina. It's my goal going to Black Canyon, and so I'm super stoked for that. That being said, it's going to require a very, very fast time, right? So uh, usually the winners uh, definitely hover around the eight-hour range in terms of finishing this 100K race. It'll probably go sub-eight hours this year, I would guess. 
So you're going to have to cook a pretty, pretty fast pace um, in order to really secure that golden ticket um, at Black Canyon. And so my whole goal with this training block was number one, to get faster. Number two, to pace smarter, because when I did Javelin 100, I did not pace that race well at all. It was a 27% positive split. And I want to be able to pace the race relatively well. I'm not looking at negative split, but like if I can have a slighter positive split, that would be totally good for me. So that's number two. And then number three is really figure out the 100K distance. This is my first time ever racing in 100K. Like I mentioned before, I've, mentioned, I've raced Javelin 100, so I've raced 100 mile. I've actually raced 200 mile races. I've raced multiple 50 mile races, but I've never raced 100K. Um, so I'm super, super interested to kind of dive into that distance, being that it is, you know, both fast, but also long and on the endurance side. And so um, it's going to be interesting to just kind of see those things. So those are kind of like my big goals for the race and how I kind of crafted my training onto there. So in order to do those things, I had to kind of practice a few different things in my training. I had to practice one, getting faster. Um, number two, I also had to practice smarter pacing, as mentioned before. And then number three, and this is kind of like an interesting, you know, uh, uh, wrench that got thrown into my training, um, but I actually was dealing with a hamstring issue for pretty much the entire training block, and this is an issue that I've been dealing with, you know, since I think even like, you know, four months uh, into the last uh, uh, build of Javelin 100, but I just typically ignored it because I didn't really think anything of it, and then it really started hurting me, so to give you some details... Um, four months until Javelin 100, I started to feel this pain into my, uh, my butt to give you lack of better terms, my right butt cheek. And uh, I thought it was my glute. And so I thought my glute was weak. And so I was doing all these glute exercises and it was never really getting better. Um, and it really, really hurt, but it was like one of those kind of injuries where you can run on it. Right. So I just kept running on it, ended up running 100 miles on it, a Javelin 100. Um, yes, it hurt like hell, but uh, kind of tapered away after that. Um, I was doing some building back up running after Javelin 100, and then I did a half marathon at um, the Ironman 70.3 Indian Wells. I was just doing the run portion, which is a half marathon, and I went to go for a PR. And I got my PR on there. It was 125, not nothing to so, so crazy, and I wasn't totally fresh, but my hamstring hurt, or I should say my butt hurt so, so bad after that. And I knew I had to get it fixed. Um, so I started working with Brody Sharp from Run Smarter. He's been a guest on this podcast twice already. Really, really great guy. Um, and he's been helping me to rehab that along the way. Um, and so um, I'll kind of bring that up later on how I kind of modified my training to that. I'm actually going to do a whole episode on uh, this rehab process later down the road. But um, that was also a big factor was to not piss that thing off so that it would totally debilitate me from the race. So that was like another big focus in my training. So just to recap those three things, uh, number one is getting faster. Number two is pacing smarter. And then number three, um, making sure I don't blow out my hamstring so that, um, it, it was injured. And for those who are asking, wait, if your butt hurts, why is it your hamstring? Um, well, I later found out that it was high hamstring tendinopathy. Um, it wasn't my glute at all. It was in fact the part of the hamstring that attaches to the hip bone um, that is on your sit bone basically. Um, so it feels like your butt, but it's really your hamstring. And so I was treating the glute the entire time thinking it was my glutes when it really was my hamstring. And I was actually making it worse that way. So once I started to attack the hamstring, which I'll kind of talk about in this episode, um, that's when I started to see the progress on it. Um, so that's kind of that. 
those are the big goals on there. Um, in terms of time frame of when I really started training, so I started my training, um, I'm pulling up the calendar right now just so I can see this, um, around like December 4th. Um, so that gave me a few weeks to really dive in. And to be specific, there was about a 12-week training block um, to really dive in there. So I had 12 weeks to get ready for uh, Black Canyon 100K. Um, I had finished Havelina 100 on October 31st, and I really started officially training for this 100K on December 4th. So I kind of gave myself a easy November to kind of recuperate, not really focus on structured training, kind of give myself a little bit of a break because... I had been so much race after race after race for not just the past year, but also for like the past three years. And so to give myself a month where I just kind of laid low, didn't have structured training, wasn't married to a plan, even did some traveling, went out to Greece with my fiance. I thought it was great to just really just get that reset so that when December came around, I was ready to go and fresh and to jump into a whole new training block. Um, in terms of my training block developed, I know the question that I got was how do you build your training plan um, that was sent in to me? And like I said in the beginning of the episode here, um, I didn't build the plan at all. I actually uh, worked with Zach Bitter, and Zach Bitter, um, he curated the plan based on my schedule day-to-day, based on my stress levels, based on my hamstring uh, issue, based on my goals for the race. Um, so he was the one who really tailored that plan. And the way that we really structured it was a few different ways. So the first part was base building, right? Getting back to base, getting back to, um, you know, just some easy miles out there and just getting, you know, my overall mileage back up. The second part, which is like the second four weeks really focused on like a lot more speed work and a lot more getting faster. We kind of had to modify this a little bit with the hamstring, which I'll talk about again, but still that was kind of like a big part was speed work and, and focusing on intervals and uh, short interval development and everything like that. And then the latter parts of the training, so like the latter four-ish weeks and even I should say six weeks, really, really focused on long run development and building the endurance around it. So um, that was kind of like the different phases that my training was structured in. It's generally the kind of phase that is structured in there where, um, you know, I kind of have a base building period, then I kind of have a speed period, then I have a long run development period, and then I have a taper. Um, and my taper was less than two weeks. Um, I'm in the taper right now as we're recording, but my last long run was actually, um, not this past Saturday, but the Saturday before that, um, so relatively shorter taper, but I, I found that I do better in that regards. So that was kind of how I structured the training from there. So, what I really did in the beginning, the base building period went great and everything like that. Um, but we had to make some modifications around my speed work sessions. Um, so originally I was planned to do a lot of short intervals at about a nine out of 10 intensity. Um, and quite frankly, so dealing with this high hamstring issue, it was starting to get pretty painful. And if you've ever had high hamstring tendinopathy or heard of it, the two things that aggravated the most are hills and, uh, and, and acceleration or speed. Um, and so given that I was, shouldn't, shouldn't have done some speed. And quite frankly, I had to cut out hills for a little bit. So when it got to that, like speed building phase, we actually had to take a few weeks off the table in terms of speed work and even trail work. And so I was like pinned to the roads for a little bit, um, and was not doing any speed work for about two weeks. Um, but I was incorporating a lot of strength training along the way. I was basically doing like a strength exercise almost every single night in those beginning phases. And I was doing a 
lot of hamstring targeting, such as Nordic hip dips. If you ever look those up, incredible exercise. Like, I don't know why the hell these aren't done more often, but I was doing those almost every night, doing some deadlifts, doing some step ups, doing some banded exercises. I was doing those pretty, pretty frequently to help getting my hamstring into a good position where it can really, really start to strengthen a lot more without getting totally pissed off on any of these intervals and everything like that. So in that base building period, uh, like I mentioned before, I think I was like clocking around. Um, let me see. Let's just pull up the Strava right here. Good old handy dandy Strava. So we have it here. Um, yeah. So my, my first week was like about 53 miles and the second week was about 68 miles. I had a deload week after that at about 47 miles and then, uh, kind of get into that speed phase. I was still putting up some good mileage, still putting like went right to like 80 um, 80 miles, uh, the week after that was 80 miles and then a deload week of 72 miles, um, in that regards. Um, those mileages probably would have progressed a lot more, but again, I kind of took some speed off the table and had to substitute it with some easy runs. Um, so that was really, really tough and I couldn't do too much hills, which kind of sucked as well. So I was doing the road. But in those kind of like first two weeks where I was really targeting the hamstring itself, um, you know, it allowed me to get back out there. And that's kind of a suggestion that I have for everybody is if you're dealing with an injury, like it is so not worth it to, to stick with the plan. You have to modify the plan, whether you're working with a coach or whether you're following a training plan, you have to modify the plan um, in order to stay in the game. Because I told myself, hey, if I continue on this path where I'm doing these speed workouts and putting so much intense pressure on my tendons, um, I could snap my hamstring or blow it out and not be able to race. And like, that's the goal that nobody wants in there. So I had to really take the hard step to kind of take a step back. Um, and it was interesting because when I was talking with Zach about this, I was kind of getting afraid. I was like, hey, like, am I going to be fast enough? Like this speed work stuff is really important. And he was telling me that, you know, I'm still banking on a lot of fitness after Javelina. So um, I'm in a good shape for sure. So for for any of you listening right now who you know, maybe are worried about, you know, taking a few weeks of speed work off the table or a lot more faster uh, training, just remind yourself that if you're like back to back kind of racing with like another race, um, you're probably banking on the fitness from that race, which is super, super cool. So I think that was really, really great. Um, and just a good confidence booster. The good news is after like two weeks, I started to see the pain subside a lot more and I was able to incorporate a little bit more speed work into my sessions. I was starting to do some intervals, um, starting to do more trails, getting a lot more trail work and getting that in there as well. So I can get much more faster and start focusing more on my technical footwork as I'm going on the trails. Um, and then basically by, uh, January 16th. Um, that's like kind of like when I was like into full capacity of training. And I was, this is really where kind of like the long run development started to kind of kick in a lot more. Um, and anytime I was doing a long run, I would go on the Black Canyon course. So luckily and thankfully, I live here in Arizona. I live fairly close to the Black Canyon course. And I'm a huge proponent, even if you don't live where the race is, um, race on terrain that is as specific as what you were going to race on if it's possible. So for example, if you're racing on a rugged trail mountain race, Try and get on that kind of trail as much as possible. If you are racing a road race and it's like flat, 
practice on flat roads, right? Like I always think specificity really, really matters, especially in the later part of the race. Um, not just from like a physical perspective of you adapting to being able to run on that terrain, but ultimately the mental terrain as well, because the more you do it, the more, uh, familiar your brain gets on taking on those kind of trails or those kind of roads, whatever you're training on. And you're able to really, really, um, you know, uh, see it as much more familiar on race day. So it's like not as daunting or unexpected or anything like that. And so for me, um, I would run the Black Canyon course on my long runs and I would do it in sections. Typically it goes by like three different sections. So like there's the first section, which is about, I want to say 20 miles. And then the next section, which is about like 18 miles. And then the last section, which is about 25 miles, um, depending on just like availability and, you know, uh, doing some point to point drop offs. Cause you kind of got to shuttle people cause it's a point to point. Um, I would just kind of like rotate between each section. Um, but the section I really wanted to train on the most was the third section because that one's the hardest. And that one is probably the biggest beast to tackle during the race, because obviously it's the later part of the race, but it's also got some incline as well. So I really try to get on that third one as much as I possibly could. And I think I practice on that section as much as possible. I didn't do the whole 25, um, all the time, but, um, you know, I did some out and backs here and there, but I would try and get as familiar with that as possible. Probably another big win for my training cycle as well is I did a lot of these long runs with other people as well, which is super, super cool. Um, so um, someone asked me, like, what's the difference between this buildup and the Javelina buildup? And I'll go deeper into that later into this episode. But one of the biggest differences was that almost every single one of my long runs I did with other people. Um, and I think that was so beneficial for so many reasons. The first reason is you make great memories with people, right? Because like if you're out there slogging on these long runs that are like two, three, four hours um, and you're alone, uh, it, it can kind of get brutal after a while, right? Like sometimes it's necessary and sometimes I like to do it, but like, man, those are like three hours you can be spending making amazing memories of people. Um, and why not do it with people who love to run as you? So I got to like really run with some amazing people, you know, over this, uh, over this training block, uh, Sarah and Melissa Ostazewski ran with them a lot. Um, Austin Horn, Georgia Porter, um, Lindsay McDonald, Meredith, uh, Carrie, like just so many names. Uh, I can keep going on. Alex Lamb, Morgan, uh, man, I, like all the names are just coming to me. Uh, Nathaniel, Scott Trayer. I like, I want to like thank everyone here um, who's ran with me. It's been like so cool because I've like really developed, I think some, some good friendships and good miles and good conversations with a lot of these amazing people. So, um, I thought that was just so, so awesome. I think the second thing is too, is when you surround yourself with people who are as stoked about your goal as you are, then it keeps you just so much, um, I don't want to say in the game because like, I don't think you should be motivated to be in it because other people are in it, but it makes you feel a lot more connected to the goal. And what I mean by that is sometimes, especially in ultra training, it can feel lonely, right? Because like to the norm, you know, running 20 miles on a weekend can seem weird or seem kind of like insane to some people. Um, and they were like, why would you ever do that? Or like, if you ask someone, Hey, you want to run 20 miles? They're like, why the heck would I do that? Whereas like if you, you know, say, hey, like, you know, go to someone who's training for Black Canyon and want to, he's like, hey, you want to train for the race this week? And they're like, heck yeah, let's do it. Like, that's just such an awesome feeling to know that there's a community around the same goal that you want to do. And it makes you just feel so much more closer to that goal. Um, so I think building a community is an amazing, amazing part um, about running with people, especially if they're running after the same goal as you are, um, because it's also just so motivating and inspiring to be chasing the same goals as someone else, especially your friends. So um, that was 
a cool thing um, where I got to do a lot of running with some amazing people um, over my training in the Black Canyon. And that's that's why I think I enjoyed it a lot more. Um, I will say on the overall too, just kind of like thing, this was a very tough training block for me personally too. Um, my personal schedule has just been bananas um you know when it comes to um work and wedding planning and some family things that kind of popped up in my life and obviously dealing with the hamstring issue and having to go to PT and like also running the podcast here and everything uh this was probably like the busiest time of my life and um it really was I don't want to say a struggle because I was really able to execute it but it was it was hard to fit everything in and I think the way that I was really able to get by it um and this is something that I always recommend anyone with busy schedules who is looking to find some training time in is uh, I just scheduled all this stuff week in advance so every Sunday Sunday, I would look at my schedule of what I had to do for training, what I had to do for the podcast, what I had to do for wedding planning, what I had to do for work, what I have to do spending time with my fiance, everything like that, and schedule it all out in advance. Once I schedule it in advance, I know it's locked in and ready to go. So that if I have another request that kind of comes in or something that I need to, or something that is asking for my attention, and I look on the schedule and I see, well, I can't because I have a double, you know, run scheduled today, or I have to do, you know, wedding planning tonight, or I have to hop on a podcast interview or edit a podcast. Um, I know the answers already know because I kind of locked it in in advance. Now, I know this doesn't always work for everybody because I understand some people like to be a little bit more spontaneous and everything like that, and that's totally fine. Um, I do think regardless if you're spontaneous, putting it in your calendar is at least going to take that burden off your back of like, when am I going to fit this in? Because even if you are spontaneous and change things up, if you put it in your calendar earlier in advance, you know you have the time for it. You know that you're making the time for it. You know it can fit in. And I think sometimes even just like the daunting question of like, will I get this in is going to really go away if you just have it like visibly seen on the calendar, right? I know a lot of the times when I feel really overwhelmed, it's because I believe I don't have the like the time to get it done. And so um, by putting it in a calendar has really helped me. So, you know, uh, I've had to deal with also to not sleeping too much, which is not ideal, um, and and being more stressed than usual, I think. Um, I've been really trying my best towards like the last um, weeks of the training plan, and I think I've been doing well at mitigating those things, so getting more sleep, not getting as stressed out, um, kind of just tailoring my like um, emotions a lot more on there because uh, sleep and stress can be very, very difficult very very dangerous factors when it comes to recovery time and everything but uh, I think in the latter half and especially in the taper um, I've been really just focusing on minimizing stress and maximizing sleep as much as possible so I can feel good on race day and I am feeling really good Um, so that was really really great Um, and then um, the taper has just been going so so well so I did a 17 mile kind of like shakeout run this past week at an easy pace with like 1600 feet of gain and uh came out about like a 758 pace which was like rocking so um I do feel like I'm the fittest I've ever felt before um I think my hamstring is almost at 100% at this point it I it definitely starts to you know uh bother me here and there at times but it's it's nothing I can't run through for sure um and so uh I do I'm really confident that I can get a golden ticket in this race if everything goes right for sure so uh that was kind of like a look into my training block how I structured it how I dealt with the ups how I dealt with the downs how I dealt with you know all the things that kind of came my way um that was the look into um the uh, Javelina thing. Um, I want to uh, respond to a few audience questions here um, about my specific training itself. So um, 
as I mentioned before, one of the questions was the difference versus Javelina buildup. Um, so I think obviously the biggest difference was distance, right? Um, I was putting in a few hundred mile weeks for Javelina. Um, it's a longer race. You kind of have to build more endurance. So I had to kind of cut it back a little bit, um, here at, um, uh, for the Black Canyon training. So mileage was definitely different, but I think that's obvious. I think the thing that's not as obvious, I think I actually ran at a lower intensity for Black Canyon training than I did for Javelina. And so what I mean by that was I, just kind of reflecting on my training at Javelina, I don't feel like my easy pace was as easy as it should have been. Um, either because um, my pacing was just so bad at the Javelina race that I really wanted to do better. So I think I'm just trying to control my pace a lot more and trying to run even easier in my Black Canyon uh, training. So um, I took my easy runs a lot easier in Black Canyon than I did at Javelina. Now, what's interesting, if you look at my Strava, it doesn't seem that way because my pace is getting better. Um, but I just think that's a more of a function of fitness because my... Um, my overall intensity feels the same, but my pace is just way higher, um, which is great. So, um, or I should say lower, higher, lower. I don't know if it, it's faster. That's the better acronym right there or acronym adjective. Come on, Joe. Let's, let's, let's say the right words here. Why don't you, uh, my pace is a lot faster. <laughs> Excuse the commentary there, but um, yeah, I, I was taking the slow runs a lot slower. Um, so that was kind of like a big difference with Javelina as well. The other thing with Black Canyon too, um, not as much heat training. Um, I did do a lot more heat training towards the end when it was getting hot here, but you know, this race doesn't tend to be as hot with Javelina. That was like a really, really big focus for me in the training block leading up to Javelina. So, um, not as much heat training on this one. And then also too, um, I, I pivoted a lot from this plan relative to Javelina. So Javelina, I stayed pretty, pretty damn close to the plan that I was prescribed. Here, I had to modify it so much based on that injury that I had, based on the hamstring, based on um, schedule move arounds, based on like a bunch of different things. And so um, I had to move around this schedule a lot and make it a lot more flexible, which I think was, I, I mean, I don't want to say it's better, but like, because it definitely felt a little bit more stressful at times for me, but I think it was smarter, so to say, because there was probably some times during Javelina when, you know, I maybe should have like let off the gas a little bit, but I kind of just kept going. Um, so yeah, I, I think just listening to my body a lot more and being a lot more conscious about the training plan, that was like the big kind of differences. So when I think of the three big differences, it's the mileage, um, running my, um, easy runs a lot easier. Um, also to running my, in, um, speed work a lot harder so like I was making the easy runs easier and the the intense runs a lot more intense um I feel like I wasn't pushing kind of all out in a lot of like my other um speed work attempts so um just kind of doing that uh here in this one I think also helped a ton so running uh, a lot my my easy runs a lot easier and running my intense intervals a lot more intense um, and then, um, not as much heat training, which is a given as well. Um, and then also too, as I mentioned before, running with people, I ran with a lot more people, way, 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 more people than, uh, I did during the Javelina buildup. Most of my Javelina buildup was solo. And I would say most of my buildup, especially the long runs were done with people. And I think that made it a lot more, uh, enjoyable and it allowed me to make a lot more progress as well. Um, so that's the difference between, uh, this one and the Javelina buildup. 
Um, someone asked me, uh, how do you incorporate strength training during peak weeks? So great question. So I'll talk about strength training in general and then kind of how I handled it during peak weeks. So strength training in general, I try and get in at least one, um, day of strength training every single week in my training. And usually the day that I do it is the most intense day. And what I mean by most intense day is not how long I'm running, but how intense that I push. So for example, if I'm doing a speed work session, likely my strength training is going to be on that day. If I'm doing a tempo run, it's likely going to be on that day. Um, so any day where I'm running the most intense is usually when I do the strength training. The principle around that is that you're doing your hard days on your hard days. And so what that means is you're kind of stressing your muscles like really hard on the really hard days so that then you make the gains and the recover a lot better on the next day when you run easier. Because if you're kind of like going hard one day and then adding in strength training the next day and then you go hard another day, like you're kind of just like always in this cycle of like really stressing your muscles and you never give it that time to really recover and make that adaptation you need to really move forward or to progress safely. Um, and so like it seems counterintuitive because it's like well going hard on your hard days isn't that more pressure not exactly because your next easy day is even easier and that's actually where the recovery and the adaptation kind of happens so um that's kind of like the general thing that I do now this training block I've had to do strength training differently because of my injury um I wasn't I couldn't do certain exercises that I'm used to be in the past, such as like um, RDLs and well, really RDLs is kind of like the big one I couldn't do. Um, and I couldn't do banded sidewalks for a little bit. Um, so I had to do mostly like the the exercises that I mentioned before, deadlifts, step-ups, not RDLs, regular deadlifts, um, that is. So deadlifts, step-ups, um, Nordic hip dips, and then um, I was able to incorporate banded sidewalks down the road, calf raises. And, uh, yeah, those were like the main ones that I was doing and, um, oh, squats is the other one I couldn't have done. Um, so yeah, now I'm just kind of rambling, but, uh, the main kind of stack that I was going on was deadlifts, step-ups, Nordic hip dips, uh, banded sidewalks, calf raises, um, and yeah, those were kind of like the big ones from there. And generally in the beginning of the injury phase, which was kind of like around that starting around that speed session, which was or speed part, which is around like weeks four through six, I was doing like Nordic hip dips and um, these like banded hamstring exercises pretty much every single day. Once uh, I started to progress a lot more, um, I took the Nordic hip dips and the, those banded exercises probably to around two times a week. And then one time a week, I would do deadlifts and step ups. As I progressed weight on the deadlifts and the step ups, it now became the deadlifts and the step ups and the calf raises, which I started to add down the line once I realized I could load up up more weight easier and then the banded sidewalks and everything I would do those once a week and then I would also do the Nordic hip dips and the other banded exercises once a week as well so I was doing twice a week basically from weeks I want to say like eight to the end um, in terms of strength training um, how I incorporated during peak weeks um it would be the same exact kind of mentality and schedule from there. So I would do it on my intense days um, and I would do it um, basically, um, you know, pretty spaced out from each other. So like um, if my uh, um, 
most intense day was on a Wednesday. Then the next day I would do it or would do the other strength session would be on like Sunday um, at the day after my long run or after the second long run or anything like that. Um, just to give myself some space in between to really recover. Um, and I kept that kind of same thing. I, I think if you're going into peak week, like keep the strength training the way it is. You don't have to modify it. If you do start feeling a lot more sore, that's, that's a signal to modify for sure. Like maybe, you know, don't up the weight as much, keep the same weight, um, or you know, do less reps or just kind of take it a little easier. I totally, um, you know, fall into that camp for sure. But if you're feeling fine, you're recovering well, and you don't have that muscle soreness, um, keeping the same path with strength training is usually going to be helpful. And that's what I did during my peak weeks uh, here at Black Canyon. So um, great question on that one um, and how I incorporated strength training, not just during my peak weeks, but the rest of the things. Um, I got a question here too. Who was the best person you did a long run with on the course? Um, so obviously this is someone who is in contention for that answer. Austin Horn. Um, I would say like everybody on the course I did is great. Austin. Yes. You're amazing, dude. I appreciate you a ton. Like, I think, I think the runs you, you saw me probably at like (laughs) feeling like crap on both times, like, uh, that we ran together. Um, but yeah, Austin Horn, I mean, just an awesome person to run with. Like I said, Melissa Ostazewski, I ran with her a ton out on the on the on the um Black uh, training, uh, Black Canyon Trail. So it was great to run on the course with her too. But um, man, like everyone I ran there is my favorite. It's been super, super cool. I'd say I've ran it the most, definitely with Melissa a lot more. Austin a few times as well. Aaron Barber as well. Um, Georgia Porter, who I ran with a ton out there. Um, yeah, she's going to crush it on race day. I know it will. So is Melissa and Austin. All three of them are racing as well. So I think I ran with those three people the most. Yeah, Melissa, Georgia, Austin, for sure. Um, so it was super cool because uh, they're all doing the race as well. And so uh, it's been it's been super, super fun. So, uh, yeah, those are all uh, – everybody that I ran with was the best person I ran with. So there we go. Um, okay. Um, looking at the year, any, oh, here's one. So how do you prepare yourself mentally for the race? Um, I kind of see this in two different parts. Um, by the way, that's a question that someone asked in, if you didn't know already, I just kind of jumped right into it. The next question was, how do you prepare yourself mentally for the race? Um, the first part is I prepare myself mentally by getting in good training. I think it's really easy to mentally prepare for a race if you have good training going into it. A lot of the times when we get nervous about something is because we feel like we're not prepared. Um, I shouldn't say all the time because, you know, there's always a level of nerves and anxiety, I think, for anything big that you're doing. But I think sometimes um, the most overbearing anxiety going into something is feeling like you're underprepared or undertrained for it. So I think the best way to prepare mentally is getting good training. And you tell yourself that the training today is not only going to make me better physically, but it's also going to make me better mentally because I'm going to have the confidence to really go out and race super, super well. So I think that's like a big thing to really have in there is, is you know, getting in good training. And that's how I prepare myself mentally for the race. Now, of course, there's still some nerves. There's still some anxiety, especially like given all the hype around this race and all the like just the fanfare that's going on and everything like that, like trust me, like, you know, I'm going for a golden ticket, but there's probably 50 guys who can get a golden ticket on Saturday. It's a stacked race. You got Tom Evans, you got Ryan Miller, you got Cole Watson, you got uh, all these just amazingly talented runners out there. And, you know, no one is picking me as a top contender, like literally no one. And that's totally fine. Um, Does it get to my head sometimes? Absolutely. Um, But I don't let it at the end of the day. And I think um, 
the big way to prepare myself mentally for the race is number one, recognize that I'm going to be running my own race in the end of the day. Sure, I want to win. Sure, I want to compete. Sure, I'm going to keep my eye on the prize. But in the end of the day, I want to push myself and see what I can do personally um, and not see what other people can do. Um, and that's really the most important thing. The second thing um, that I do to prepare myself mentally, and this kind of goes into another question that I had in there is what's your mental and visualization approach? Shout out to Andrew for asking that question. Um, so I have really am, am keen on visualization. I think visualization is super, super huge. Um, but I took a different approach to visualizing this race during my training than I did um, visualizing myself during Javelina. So during myself at Javelina, I would visualing, vi envision myself feeling strong at the late parts of the race. Envision myself feeling great. Envisioning myself with legs that can move. Envision myself with like just amazing nutrition and feeling well. And that was amazing. Um that didn't work as much. And I didn't hit me why it didn't work as much until I talked with Brett Hornig, who is an episode I'm going to release really, really soon. He talks about this on the episode is visualization works when you can imagine yourself pushing through the times when you feel terrible. And I thought that was genius. And so when I heard him say that, um, touring my like last few long runs and on the taper, really, um, I should say it was mostly the taper because we recorded it into there. But like I started to incorporate this a lot more during my runs as well. Is like I would envision myself and my legs just feeling like absolutely shot and like my stomach just feeling crappy and like I'm just feeling tired and like envision myself like feeling all those things and then pushing through all those things. The reason why I do that is because now I know when the moment hits when something doesn't go right when I'm not feeling well when like my legs are just like not turning over as much as I want to um, I can push on and go stronger and stronger so like that was a really really cool part um, uh, and, and something that brings me a lot of confidence because now like I can visualize and see myself pushing through the difficulties even when you know, it starts to just feel absolutely horrible. And, you know, that makes me a lot more confident because I know in the end of the day, it's a given, like, I'm going to hurt out there. There's no way, shape or form um, that it's not going to hurt. But now I know that I'm going to deal with it a lot, lot better. So great question on that approach. Okay. So um, now we're going to talk race strategy, going into the Black Canyon race strategy, right? So, um, I'm just going to really just go through my race strategy and, and the amount of questions that I got here. So, um, so pre-race and, uh, someone asked, what is your pre-race, uh, dinner? Um, so pre-race dinner, uh, is going to be pizza. Like I go and I usually take on a full personal pizza the night before any long run, the night before any race, um, for a few different reasons. Number one, you get a good amount of carbs and fat, which are your two energy sources that you need in endurance sports. And you get a ton of it through the carbs of the crust, through the cheese of the pizza. And also, most importantly, pizza tastes fucking delicious. It is absolutely amazing. It is the greatest food that has ever been created on the face of this earth. So why wouldn't you want to eat that before a race? Um, so um, it gives me like both sides of the coin. Number one, it like I just love pizza. Number two, it gives me um, good, good fuel for the race day. And a lot of people are like, well, pizza's not healthy. Like, uh, is that really a good idea? Honestly, God, if you get pretty clean pizza, it really is just bread and cheese and sauce. And like, it doesn't bother my stomach at all. I've never had like super bad stomach issues after eating pizza, really haven't. Um, so I think it's a good strategy for me. It's worked well for me in the past. And so I'm going to continue to do it. So that's my pre-race dinner. Um, same person also asked, what's your victory dinner? And uh, you guessed it. It's also going to be pizza because again, I love pizza. I absolutely love it. Um, usually they have Freak Brothers at the Aravipa event. So if you're a Phoenix local and know Freak Brothers pizza, or if you've been at an Aravipa event and seen their pizza around, they usually have like a cold 
portable fire or a, I don't even know what you call it. Like a, they usually have like a portable oven or whatever where they're just slinging pizzas at the end of a race. And so uh, you better believe that if they have one over there, I'm going to be definitely getting one and housing one after as well. So that's my pre-race and also victory dinner as well. Is it strategy? Absolutely. What you eat before a race definitely matters. After, not so much, but definitely before, for sure. Um, same person asks hydration strategy. And I've got a few other questions too. What is your hydration strategy? Uh, what's your hydration and nutrition strategy? So I'm going to talk about that because I think that's the biggest part of the race. Hydration, for sure, is the biggest part of any kind of race like this. Um, and nutrition, I think, is the second most important part. So on the hydration part, um, I plan to carry with me two 20 milliliter handheld water bottles. So those are pretty big water bottles and I plan to finish um, at least one of those bottles every single hour. Um, sometimes more if I'm feeling a little bit more thirsty. Um, in each of those bottles, uh, well, I should say I'm going to have the two bottles. One of them is going to have three scoops of Gatorade Endurance um, which is going to have 280 calories, 900 milligrams of sodium um, and then uh, 50 grams of carbohydrates. Um, and the other bottle is going to have two scoops of those. And so the reason why I don't have three scoops in both of them is because I think 900 milligrams of sodium every single hour is a little bit overkill. Um, so I like going to about 900 and then 600 and kind of cycling off of that. Now that sounds very, very high, but let me tell you, if you don't get enough sodium in the desert when it gets super, super hot, you are absolutely fucked. And so a lot of people say like, oh, you only really need like 300 an hour in the desert. I truly believe that it doubles, especially when you get into kind of like the hotter parts of the race and everything like that. So that's why I try and get in like 900 to 600 to 900 milligrams of sodium every single hour and I plan to be diligent on that drinking one bottle every single um, hour now when I get to the aid stations I'm not going to have Gatorade endurance on me when I get to my cruise I totally will but in the meantime I'm going to have to supplement with uh, goo roctane which they have in the coolers as well it has a little bit less sodium so I'll also bring out some salt cabs as well to top off to make sure that I'm getting at least 600 at the most 900 every single hour of sodium uh, because that's what I felt works best for me. And when you have your sodium and your electrolyte levels topped off, that is a, an easy way to go from there. So in terms of calories too, I'm planning to get in about 400 calories an hour. Now this is a little risky for me because in the past I've gone 300 calories an hour, but I still feel like it's not enough because I was doing that a lot of my long runs here and I was bonking a lot, lot more. And so um, I think I'm going to need to up my calorie intake a little bit more and I'm going to go with 400 calories an hour. All my calories are going to be derived from either Gatorade Endurance, Goo Roctane, like I mentioned before, or Goo Gels, um, because I just absolutely love those gels. They go down for me really, really easy, and I did that during Javelina. I just did Roctane, I did Gatorade Endurance, and I did um, Goo Gels, some potato chips as well here and there, but not not too prominently. Um, I'm going to stick to mostly gels and liquid calories because my stomach just responds so much better to that than it does real food. Um, so I'm going to be doing that about 400 calories every hour, going to drink about 20 milligrams of, uh, sorry, 20 milliliters of water every hour with about uh, 600 to 900 milligrams of sodium every single hour. If you don't consume sodium or water enough on this race, you are going to get fucked. It is gets really, really hot towards the end. Even if it's only 65 degrees, that sun in the air Arizona temperature still feels very, very hot and it's later in the race. Your heart rate's probably going to be a little bit more elevated. Your legs are going to be tired. You might be moving a little slower. You can be cooking a little bit more like it is. You need to manage that last heat in the part of the race. And so I'm just making sure to bank on all that sodium, all that water, all that nutrition um, to really help me carry through so I can push on strong towards the end. 
So that right there is the hydration and nutrition strategy that I'm going for at Black Canyon 100K. All right, and then the next part of the race strategy, which I'm getting a lot of questions on, is the pacing. And as you remember from the earlier part of the episode, um, I talk about how that's a big, big goal of mine to pace the race really, really smart. So when I think about like the pace that I'm trying to go in this race, I mean, you got to go... Uh, a sub eight minute mile overall pace to even have contention to win um, or even to be in a golden ticket spot. I think like if I, if I go for like an average pace of like seven fifty, um, seven forty five, even if I'm feeling really, really good, I think that's going to be the great mark. So I think that's like generally what I'm going to shoot for at this day. Um, so uh, I got um, a few questions here. So one of them says, what are your splits between the first and second half of the race? Um, are you, uh, looking at as a 50 K split or, um, looking at splits at like aid station to aid station? Um, so I guess like the way that I'm really looking for it is like, honestly, I'm just going to be kind of going for it on pace. So the way that I'm really just going to approach it is I'm going to like run relatively at an easier clip in the beginning than I would probably normally go. Um, all without, all while trying to keep it under that 745 pace threshold. So, um, what I mean by that is like, I'll probably be going like, you know, easily, you know, sub seven at some parts for sure. Um, probably like more like seven fifteen at like some of like the hillier parts on that first half. Um, but like, I'm going to be keeping it below seven forty five, seven fifty for like at least that first kind of section of the race. I should say the first like 50 K of the race, hopefully, um, that'll probably be the goal from there. Um, so can I hang on to it? I think so. I think I can hang on to it for sure. But that'll be the goal from there. I do know that like the last 50K will probably be a little bit slower just given that it's going to be hotter in the day, given that, you know, obviously the legs are going to be more tired at the same time. There's a lot more climbing in the second half of the race. So that might get a little higher. But as long as I'm keeping like close to that like 750 kind of pace range, I'm going to kind of try and push as much as I can to really cover it around there. So um, on the climbs, I really want to like just hammer it strong and, you know, it'll easily be a higher than uh, average pace for sure. But on those downhills, if like my quads are still feeling pretty fresh, I want to hammer it as much. So like in terms of the strategy at Javelina, like what I did was like, I took it like each average pace per loop and kind of made it a goal from there. Um, here I'm kind of just taking a more approach and just saying, okay, here's like my average pace that I'm going to go. And I'm just going to just, you know, try and hover around that pace. And like, you know, I know that some laps are going to be faster, some laps are going to be slower and that's okay. And that's totally fine. The way that I'm actually going to be doing it is I'm going to take off the per, uh, per pace kind of like, or sorry, per mile pace, uh, notification and really just look at average pace. And just kind of like use that as like my method. Um, I do think though the first 50 K I'm going to be going out a lot easier, um, intensity wise than I will be towards the late, the later half of the race. I think like I'm going to take kind of like that Scott Traer and Jeff Colt approach where, you know, in the beginning I'm kind of like taking it a little easy. And then once black Canyon city hits at like mile 37, that's when I'm just going to really just hammer it on there. So I guess the question between like splits from aid station to aid station or 50 K split, I'm definitely looking at it more as like a 50 K, um, 
segment in terms of intensity effort. So for first 50K, I'm going to go pretty easy. And then second 50K, I'm going to really like put on the gas a little bit more in terms of the intensity and really, really kind of go from there. But in terms of like splits between first and second half of the race, I know the second half of the race is probably going to be slower. The first half of the race is probably going to be faster. Um, but as long as I'm kind of like hovering around that 750, 745 range, I'm going to be pretty good on that regards. But I want to pace it well. Um, I want to take it easy in the beginning. And that's where like this uh, last question comes in is how are you going to respond to the energy? Typically 30 plus guys go out at a sub six to six fifteen pace. And yes. And looking at the crowd here, um, that is a hundred percent going to be the case this year. I mean, you even got some guys who are, you know, 212, 214, 215 marathoners, just super, super fast guys. And some people who haven't even been in these kind of long races. So they're just going to go out screaming on that net downhill in the beginning. Um, at Javelina, I let that hype get to me and it totally destroyed my legs. Um, here I'm not going to let the hype get to me and I'm telling me myself that as much as I can. So I will probably not be in that lead pack in the beginning. Um, and that'll be kind of like a conscious effort for me, but I still want to keep people in sight. So I don't want to be like so far back where I'm like 30th or 40th or anything like that. Um, but if I'm like around like, you know, 25th or something like that, like that'll feel pretty, pretty good. Um, but again, even if like I'm 25th and I'm feeling like I'm kind of overextending myself a little bit, I'll probably pull off the gas a little bit. I really just want to go on relative effort here. So even if my relative effort and I'm feeling good and I might get like 630, 645, I'm going to keep hitting that. Um, but like if I know that I feel like I'm like, you know, at 615 and I'm kind of like overexerting myself or getting caught up in the hype, I'm going to pull back for sure. Um, and I really just want to try and make that climbing effort. And if not for this race specifically, like, you know, if that that effort of like starting from behind and then just kind of clawing my way up, if that doesn't work for this race, um, at least I know that I can like finish strong. I think like that's like my big thing. And granted, I did finish strong at Javelina, but like the last two loops were just a freaking death mark for me and um i don't want that to happen so i'm really looking to, to gun it out and just um really just make it worthwhile and shout out to my two pacers so I'm, I'm having aaron barber from phoenix arizona pacing me as well aaron you the man he's a super fast dude he's gonna bring me home uh from table mesa all the way into the finish that's gonna be awesome and then also shout out to the other legend mike greer a phoenix legend uh who just is a high volume super tough and super talented runner um who's gonna take me from black canyon city all the way to table mesa so i'm um, looking to hammer out some miles with these guys shout out to those guys they're gonna help me help me out and also shout out to my amazing fiance who's going to be crewing me the entire time um fun fact it is my birthday on wednesday february 15th and uh she asked me what i wanted for my birthday and i said as long as you are crewing me at black canyon 100k that is the best birthday gift i could ever have so big shout out to her for sure for helping out on there um really really stoked um it'll be interesting is this is my first time really anyone in my family has ever crewed me so or it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting to see what happens but i think it'll be good um just from a perspective, because I've heard people say that they like show like their true colors a lot more once they're like with someone really, really close to them because like they don't, um, like you don't have to have like a filter, right? And because they've probably already seen you at your worst. So like you just don't give a shit and you just kind of let it out. Um, so I'm being cognizant of that and just like, you know, looking to have my game face on and not feel, uh, not not just like have my total colors show out because I know I'm probably going to go to the well on this race and it's going to be awesome from there. Um, but that's kind of like my strategy. The, the last thing I'll say on strategy 
is I'm going to be topical cooling for this race for sure. So um, to really start acclimating for the heat on this race, what I've been doing is I've been going for a run and then right after the run, hitting the sauna for about 20 minutes um, while my heart rate is still a little elevated just to get myself some heat acclimation. And then also it's been pretty hot here in Phoenix. I'm getting around 75 degrees on some days. I've been trying to run out in the middle of those days as much as possible to soak up the heat um, just so I can feel pretty heat acclimated because it does get hot towards the later end of the day, even if it is low 60s. Um, and even if it's hot, I'm going to be wearing arm sleeves and be shoving ice down those arms. I'm going to be soaking myself in water at the water crossings. Um, I'm going to be dousing myself at water any chance that I get towards that uh, mid part of the race. I think topical cooling is a key. And I think people forget that, you know, 65 degrees in the desert is still pretty hot um, and people just get torched at the end. So um, I'm not going to make that mistake. I'm going to have that in there. And that's a big part of the strategy in there. So uh, that's uh, all my training secrets, my race strategy, answering your questions about the Black Canyon 100K and everything like that. Um, I hope that was super helpful. The next part of this episode is going to be diving into the course mechanics, the course strategy, a little bit more about the race itself, what it takes to win out there um, with my co-host, Lindsay McDonald. So going to jump into that part of the episode. And then remember, part two goes all into our picks, our listens, or, or I should say our listens, our picks our favorites, our analysis of the field, um, a little bit more of like the single track style episodes that you've been hearing. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy that episode, but here is the second part of the episode talking course mechanics with Lindsay McDonald. Let's dive in. This is kind of like the first foray into any kind of episode that we've done on the Everyday Ultra podcast. So um, I think it's a super cool time in trail running where we're coming in and we're seeing so many media outlets and it being uh, filled with different uh, people with commentary and analytics and opinions and research. And I think it's like really legitimizing the sport. And so uh, in order to further that, uh, my friend Lindsay McDonald on here, we were, we were running a few weeks ago and she uh, had this awesome idea idea to kind of have this on the everyday ultra podcast to have another thing. And I think it's like awesome for the sport. If more people are kind of putting out their ideas, sharing their opinions and perspectives on the race. Um, I think single track, as you all know, uh, big fans of single track over here. Um, one of my favorite running podcasts of all time, they do in amazing job at this kind of format too. Um, so it's super cool to see what they're doing. And so not in the retrospect of totally uh, copying what they're doing, but more so to add to the conversation. I think this is a cool thing to have on there and add our own opinions. Definitely listen to the single track preview episodes alongside this one too. They're great. But uh, uh, Lindsay and I are going to go and we're going to kind of analyze the Black Canyon race. We're going to go through the course. We're going to go through what it takes to win. We're going to go through some historical statistics. We're going to go through some predictions, some hot takes, some podium picks. Um, I got my athletic brew here, so it's probably going to get a little spicy here. I think anytime I pull this out, like it's always it's always a good time for some hot takes. But before we dive in, I'd like to uh, introduce my co-host on here. So uh, Lindsay McDonald, she is on the Era Viper racing team based out of Flagstaff, Arizona. Super talented runner, but also super knowledgeable runner when it just comes to analyzing a race field and, you know, uh, making uh, picks and predictions on race day and everything. So I couldn't imagine a better co-host to come on here with me. Um, she's probably going to, I mean, you should see the research she's done for this. It's like truly just amazing. Um, and so I'm just stoked to have her on here. So Lindsay, thanks so much for coming on and being a co-host today. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. I love this stuff. I'm 
pumped to go through all of the stats and the hot takes and the super talented field that is coming to Black Canyon this year. Yeah. And you've raced this race before too, which I think is like a good perspective to have on here as well. Yeah. I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing. I'll, I'll try to leave my personal experience out of um, how I analyze this, but yeah, it was my first hundred K last year. I do have um, probably a couple, couple hundred miles total run on this course, just uh, from training runs. Inevitably, if you live in Arizona um, in January and February, you're going to get pulled into everyone training for black Canyon's training runs. So you know, if you want to run with someone, it's probably going to be on the Black Canyon course. Just this year, I think I've ran probably 50 miles on it. So I've got a nice fresh set of eyes on the course. And hopefully I'll be um, helpful and insightful for those looking for some perspective going into next week's race. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're going to deliver on it too. Cause even when you and I, we were sharing some miles on the black Canyon course, you were already just, just, uh, given out like just awesome predictions and insights and everything, which kind of was the Genesis for this episode right here. So I'm stoked to dive in on this and this is going to be uh, a ton of fun. So I guess like maybe like to just kind of recap and start this whole thing off, right. Let's just talk about black Canyon in general. Right. So as we all know, golden ticket race known as one one of the most competitive 100Ks in the US, if not the world. Um, and the fields are usually generally, generally stacked, particularly this year, right? Yeah, I mean, every year it's grown in its competition. I think it's grown even more than last year. Last year, it was, I believe, the fifth or sixth most competitive ultra race in the world. Um, I think like sixth. So, I mean, this year, I would be surprised to see the stats. Um, it just keeps ballooning out. It's a really good time of year to have a golden ticket race because you have ample opportunity to recover um, and regroup before uh, Western States, whereas Canyons is a little getting a little close. Um, it's a little trickier to rebound and actually put a training cycle together. But yeah, I would say <clears throat> I, I don't I don't know how to actually validate how competitive it is. Um, I know Leah Yingling's uh, significant other put together a really interesting, he basically added up um, the UTMB index scores of like the top 20. That is a good way to understand kind of the competitiveness. But then you also have a lot of people who haven't run races that register in that UTMB, UTMB index. So I don't know. How do you quantify it? I just looking at, I think last year on my list, I may, maybe had like 15. And this year, I think I could easily have 25 to 30 individuals on both sides. So it's just really exciting to see how big this race is getting. Yeah, for sure. And it's a good note on that UTMB index thing too, right? Because um, I think this race kind of brings up all different types of runners uh, that may not even be in UTMB index races, right? Yeah. Like, so to, to kind of like maybe use like Javelina as an example, right? Uh, that's a race where you're getting a lot of speedsters. You're getting a lot of really, really fast runners that maybe aren't doing the UTMB kind of index race. And when you look at that, exact graph that you mentioned, like Havelina is like pretty low on there, but still very, very competitive race. Um, but I think it doesn't um, take into an account. And I think the UTMB index kind of shows that uh, a lot of like the mountainous kind of uh, more technical kind of runners don't like to go towards that race. Whereas at Black Canyon, I think you do get more of those and you get the speedsters as well. So you get kind of like this combination of like two different worlds in trail running to kind of get like the best of each category. And so again, I don't know if there's like a right way to quantify it, but I think it's like to add on to the competitive 
competitiveness of Black Canyon relative to like a Javelina or uh, something even like a Canyons, because you probably won't get a lot of speedsters at Canyons, given that, you know, it's relatively more technical. I think Black Canyon brings both of those worlds in here. And I think we see that with the field this year, which is what makes it just so competitive, but also like such a wild card for winners, especially like last year with like True Heart coming out of nowhere on it. Yeah, yeah. I think actually Canyons, um it does bring the speedsters it's just a more strength-based race because it's Mm. climbing um it was more competitive than black canyon last year by Mm -hmm. that index indicator Mm -hmm. so it i i don't know if it will be this year i think more people are there's more international presence this year i think than ever before at black canyon which is also a really cool thing you i think you can classify black canyon as now like an international level race Mm -hmm. just with the talent that is bringing in and i think it's going to keep um progressing that way through every year Mm -hmm. yeah especially because like they're just bringing the entrance list up so much more i mean like this race was like slated to hold like a thousand people like or something like that which is just nuts yeah yeah huge obviously golden ticket being the allure for a lot of people and some people just like throwing their hat in the rings of competitive races so yeah. It's a, uh, it, and then this year, I mean, like you said, the list is just super, super long and we'll go into like our picks and kind of analyzing the field, but let's talk a little bit about like the race itself. So the course is, I mean, so interesting, right? Net downhill for the most part where the beginning is just kind of just this big plummet, like first, you know, few miles coming into Bumblebee is just kind of a screaming downhill. We know it's fast. We know it's buttery. Um, but like towards the end, I mean, it it completely shifts course in terms of just elevation and terrain and the heat. Uh, tell us, I mean, from your experience racing that race, like what it's like to have all those variables and maybe like what that looks like on race day as a runner. Yeah, so I think a lot of us look at the elevation profile instead. I mean, we obviously glance at the map. But if you glance at the actual map view of Black Canyon, you'll notice, especially if you zoom in, it is not um, a straight line or even some semblance of a straight line. It is incredibly squiggly. And that Mm -hmm. that would be how I would mostly define the Black Canyon. There are so many in and out curves, banked edges. There are washes. So you have a net downhill. uh, But the entire way you're, you're, you're having to restart your momentum um, with all of these turns. So it's just not as fluid as one might think. Um, it, I think it runs so fast because it clearly brings such a high caliber of athlete out here. So a lot of people are like, oh, it's a really fast course. I'm like, well, it's also like world-class, national-class um, runners coming out to compete that are incredibly talented on all types of terrain. But it is not – like a fluid course. It really, it settles into the body in a unique way. Um, but yeah, first 20 miles, first 20 miles is pretty much all downhill. There's one slight bump. Um, it's fast. It's the smoothest part of the trail. Uh, and what catches up with people is that eccentric loading. So, um, Mm. that force applied to your muscles at a high pace, um, for 20 miles And, you know, if you're looking at splits um, from some of the previous uh, winners on the men's side, you know, they're clocking low sixes for that 20 mile stretch. And that's not like it's not hard trail, but it's also not like super easy. It's not a road. Um, So, you know, to be in contention at the top, you need to be able to flow, um, you know, mid to low six range. 
for that first 20 miles. And then from that, that gets you to Bumblebee. Once you get to Bumblebee, um, you know, you fuel up, make sure you have food, make sure you're drinking enough because if it's a warm day, things start heating up a little bit after Bumblebee and you, you're hit with your first climb. And I would say that Bumblebee to Black Canyon is when it starts getting kind of real. Like the, it's, it's a lot more twisty and turning than the first 20. There's a lot more rocks in the road um, and trail. There are some road sections in there, but they're very punchy climbs. Um, yeah, you have climbs throughout there. It starts adding up in your legs. So if you've gone out too hard and you've really uh, uh, sustained some muscle damage from that eccentric loading, um, climbing feels very challenging. Um, and then it's getting hotter. So you, you have a dehydration component um, that could come into play as you're going to Black Canyon City. All of that stuff can set you up to have just like lead legs if you are not strategic. Um, and those who play that first uh, 60K smart and have not trashed their legs uh, can go on and and um, navigate the last 40K, which I actually, it's my favorite section. The last 40K is less of that squiggly, um, twisty, turny terrain you have longer flowier sections but there are more rocks in that back section so it's if you are not an experienced trail runner and you have um like poor neuromuscular connection just like a you know where what is that when you're connecting to your feet mm -hmm. <laughs> like if you you know like javelina if you're trashed you can keep moving forward because it's there's no rock barriers in the way but if you're absolutely trashed moving forward on rocky terrain could actually be dangerous you know there's more falls. You saw the leader last year on the women's side had a really nasty fall. Mm -hmm. um, there's also, you know, rolled ankles. So that, that last 40 K with the rocks and technicality of it um, throws a nice challenge in the way. So yeah, mm -hmm. that, that's the course as a whole. Mm -hmm. I actually, the last 40 K is super fun. Um, if you have run the first part smart, I think the last 40 K is my favorite. Yeah. And I think it's the most scenic too. Like, it's just so yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Whereas like the first, I mean, the first section does have, it's like great sceneries, especially like that first kind of like mini climb up where you're kind of overlooking the Bradshaws. It's great. But like, awesome. man, like some of those views, when you get um, climbing out of the washes at Black Canyon on the last section is just yeah. like totally gorgeous. Yeah. So one other consideration on the course, um, we've had some precipitation the mm. last month and the top part of the course like the first you know seven eight miles um can be muddy and then it also because of the cows that are free ranging out there um you can just have like the indentations they like to use those trails just like us so it can kind of tear up the trail a little bit make it choppier than it typically is just some of the feedback actually i have not run the first section like the first 10 miles that's the only part i haven't been on this year but feedback from other mm. people is it's it's a little choppier than previous years we're also supposed to get um precipitation in may or on monday and tuesday so that that could Ooh. make it a little sloppier up there so um the, the nature of the chair the trail always changes just you know with weather um with you know erosion over the years i would say you know, it, it kind of, it can make it rockier through the year. I, I think you're always looking at maybe a slightly different trail than you did, you know, at the origin of the race, um, year by year, depending on the weather. Um, yeah. So it, that's another consideration that the, the course that was 2016 course could be different than 2023 course for sure. Yeah. It's a good point. Do you think with that precipitation that there's a chance for a reroute this year? And it's interesting because I ran the 
third section uh, last week. And the water crossings were not bad at all. I mean, they were like ankle high, like, so yeah. not bad. But then um, aid station fireball, if anyone follows him on Instagram or, or Twitter, I was chatting with him because he was in Phoenix the other day. He ran the last section. I was like, hey, how was the Black Canyon course? And he's like, well, we went out to the first like water crossing and it was like really strong. And we hadn't had any rain since like I ran in between. But I don't know if it's like snow melt or like, I don't know, like what's going on with the yeah. water stuff or um, but now here. Oh, go ahead. We were trying to figure out what feeds, if anyone knows, what feeds or what's the origin of the Agua Fria. I'm assuming it may be somewhat snowmelt, and definitely we are getting tons of snowmelt in Flagstaff right now. So, yeah, I I mean, I don't know what that's going to look like, um, especially with, I don't think you're supposed to get a lot of rain, um, but I wonder if even a moderate amount will bump up those levels again. So, this should be interesting. We'll see. Yeah. Do you think if there's a reroute, it completely changes like the game, like for a lot of runners on there? Like, do you think it shakes up um, the podium kind of picks as we have it now or what? And we can we can talk about this more when we talk about the picks, but I'm curious, do you yeah. think it like dramatically changes who it favors? Well, I think we would have to get torrential rain to have a reroute. I think that they're going to have us crossing those rivers um, mm-hmm. unless they're like what they were three or four weeks ago when they were like eight feet high. Um, They're going to have you crossing rivers if they're waist deep. So just plan on getting a little wet likely and maybe have a change of shoes um, at Bumblebee and Table Mesa or not Bumblebee, Black Canyon City and Table Mesa. But if there were a reroute, so there's been two different types of reroutes. There's been the 2017 reroute, which was just an out and back. Um, It was still on all trail and, and yeah, that, that would be a hard, cause that's all down basically. And then all up. And so that would probably favor that more Canyon style runner. So a strength-based runner that has um, <clears throat> the legs to really climb for 30 miles after descending that much. Um, and then there was the road reroute that it was on some of the trail, but it actually had quite a bit of um, like fire roads around that area. Mm-hmm. And I think I would change my picks to be um, some of the faster road specific or just the speedier, more road specific ultra runners that are in the lineup. But yeah, I, I, I doubt, I mean, maybe there's like a 2% chance they reroute. I highly doubt that's going to be in the mix. Yeah. And given that low chance, I guess to bring that same kind of question over to the regular course, do you think this does favor a more strength-based or like mountainous kind of runner? Um, does it, or does it kind of play more to kind of the faster, speedier people? Um, does it require a hybrid? Like what kind of runners, I guess, from, from your perspective and maybe just looking at the last few years, has this race tend to have favored, um, you know, who, who are going to tow the line at Black Canyon if they want to do well on that day? You know, I would say that this, this course favors experience, um, mm-hmm. like understanding your body and knowing your body really, really well. Cause, um, again, that eccentric loading component, um, like knowing how that affects you and just the early signs of muscular damage or muscular fatigue and really paying attention to, um, the shift in fuel needs. I think we went over this. So like after that 20 miles, of running downhill, your downhill like calorie intake needs are going to be totally different after Bumblebee, and it can hit you so hard. Mm-hmm. Um, you've been like, oh, I only need, you know, I'm feeling great. I'm running downhill. I'm not expending a lot of energy. I don't need a lot of food. And then you start climbing, 
and you're like, oh my gosh, you, it just hits you. You're like, I need to up my intake considerably after that point. Um, and I, th- I think you froze for a minute. I thought I, would, I thought my internet was cutting out. <laughs> no, you're good. Either way, either way, yeah, I think I think experience is vital. I think you see um, in the champions through the years, um, they tend to be people with uh, very good resumes with a lot of bigger races, typically bigger races, um, or or they've run this course multiple times, like the veterans who've been on this course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what, what other things did you ask? So you said it like mountain versus speed. I think it's a combo actually. I think, I think you need to have really good running economy. Um, so the flatter, flatter running component comes into play. Um, but, uh, fatigue resistance. So having a good dose of long downhill running is absolutely crucial. So I think you see the people who have not paid attention to getting in, you know, 30 minute hour long extended, um, descents, are going to probably feel it a little bit more. You need to kind of bang up the legs and harden them up before you get on this course, or it could be a struggle for you. So yeah, a combination of that fast running, uh, being able to run low sevens uh, for women and low sixes for extended period of time, and then still run really strong for another uh, 40 miles. It's like, it's a, it's a mix of all of it. So not necessarily mountain specific, not necessarily road specific somewhere in the between, um, with good experience and yeah, seasoned vets seem to do well. hundred mm-hmm. percent. Yeah. And I, I love that part about like fatigue management that you, you mentioned, I was chatting with Cole Watson the other day on the podcast and he was saying how he was shifting a lot of his training over to basically focus on fatigue resistance and management most of, most of the time, yeah. like, right. Because yeah. like, especially when you get towards that later part of the day, your quads are feeling it and you got to go through that climb on table Mesa. You got to go through that climb right after black Canyon city. Like, I mean, like it, and it adds up relative to the other parts of the course. And it's like, if your quads are already trashed and now you're feeling hot and to your point, your nutrition's kind of all over the place. Like that's like, like black Canyon city. I mean, you just see some carnage like after that part for sure. And it's really difficult if you have not exposed yourself to um, serious downhills before the race. And you think you can magically, maybe one in a hundred magically can survive it. Um, like you can't come back from that muscle damage. Like if that sustained, like eccentric, like the mechanical effects of that type of loading under extreme stress, (laughs) like you can't just fuel through that or hydrate through that. Um, it's very challenging to come back from the muscle damage sustained from, from eccentric loading, uh, for 20 miles at a very high pace. So I think that's why you see the implosion rate you do at black Canyon city that everyone drops out. Cause it's just like, like your legs don't work. You, you see these people with jello legs walk in, like there's no coming back from it. hundred so. percent. Yeah. It's uh it's always an interesting thing to see on the live stream that aid station and people just like, not even, even like Eric Sensman on the year where he, you know, came, came back from the dead that everyone talking about. I mean, like he looked rough on there. A lot of people look rough coming, kind of coming out of there. And it's like how you either manage it right before it or coming after it. That's going to like, I think it's just a pivotal point in the race where it kind of really starts. I mean, even when uh, I was watching fine line the other day that the documentary by Dylan Harris and even Scott Trey was saying, it was like the race doesn't like begin really until black Canyon city. Like that's like kind of where things start shaking out. Um, do you think that 
it's best for people at this kind of race to take it more conservative or to be aggressive and and take those risks and really just throw it out there, right? Because we saw a guy like True Heart Brown do that very, very well last year. I mean, came screaming out of the gate and no one really touched him as we know for the rest of the race. But then you got guys like Scott and, and Jeff who, uh, you know, they played that conservative game. Scott was like 20th coming into Bumblebee, ends up coming in, you know, second place to snag that ticket. And this year we kind of got a lot of, people who go both sides of the coin, right? You have some people who are like the Nick Curry's who kind of stay conservative, but then you got a lot of fast guys who, you know, they're just going to come screaming out the gate. Um, Do you think there's an optimal strategy for this race or is it more so of like the, whatever works best in the eye of the beholder for their own strategy? Oh man, that's a tricky one. On, on one hand, these golden ticket races and a lot of these larger international like UTMB races, um, the, the new strategy is, is run from the gun, run as hard as you can and hang on for dear life. And part of me loves the courageous nature of that strategy. Um, but it's also like, you, you know, your limits, you know, what your fitness levels at and like probably half the field that does that, um, is running outside of their capabilities. Uh, I still think it's courageous to go for it, but, I, I, you do see the winner traditionally is part of that, you know, run from the front, take it out, lead it. Um, typically that's what it looks like. They may, I'm trying to think through the years, I, you don't really see the winner ever coming from behind. Now you do mm-hmm. see people like second, third, um, fourth through 10th for sure is, is that, you know, 20th place, and, you know, crawls through the carnage the last 40 K to get into that position. But I mean, if you're trying to get a golden ticket, I do think it's going to take, um, it's going to, I mean, you're going to have to be really fit, really smart. You don't have a margin of error. You need to be taking in your calories, drinking your water, no mistakes, probably no, no allowance for mistakes. Um, I do think you probably need to be in contact with that lead group or that chase group that you can't be probably much more than 10 to 15 minutes back from that lead group, um, or the, or the winner. And I mean, that's probably what it's going to take to get a golden ticket, I would imagine. But the interesting part of this year is that we have like three of the top women or people that I have in top contention already have entry into Western States or Elsa Mm -hmm. McDonald has actually not accepted her entry. She was second last year at Western States. I think she's focusing on UTMB. Um, So it potentially could roll down to fifth place. Uh, So you could have these people starting way in the back and running just a really smart conservative race and closing strong, still get a golden ticket. So that's an interesting twist to this year. I know it rolled down to, we had three golden tickets last year because of Tarawera being canceled and it went to fourth place. Um, but there's a high likelihood you could have fifth place even getting it this year, at least on the women's side, men's side. I think you also have three people who already three or four people who already have entries. So you have JP Giblin already has entry, um, uh, Tom Evans and I believe one other person. So, so yeah, that, you know what, it could be the year of the tactical, smart, conservative racer. I could see that as a hot take. Yeah, that would be so interesting, right? Like if you see 
the conservative race are kind of winning in from that strategy of a golden ticket perspective, right? Maybe they're not trying, maybe it won't get them to the win, but the win may be not necessarily what it takes to get a golden ticket. And like, that's fine. So like you could see a guy like a Nick Curry or someone who kind of takes it a little bit more easier to really come in through the, uh, through the gate and kind of win it out there or win the ticket, I should say, um, which could be interesting. I want to talk about, Oh, go ahead. Oh, I, you might be segueing into what I was going to talk about, but the temperature, yes. um, like the, the weather page. actually also has a huge contribution into kind of these conservative runners versus these front runners that mm-hmm. go balls to the wall from the beginning. Um, if we have the, I mean, it looks like it could be 69, 70. That's kind of borderline for those who are training in the Midwest, um, East coast and Colorado. I mean, that, that still could be pretty warm if you haven't been getting your sauna training in. Uh, but like last year, we had, the, believe the high was 82, 83. It was incredibly warm. That's the second hottest year ever, um, aside from the first year is ever held. And those are the years where I really think, I mean, first of all, it was just crazy what uh, True Heart did. Um, but Scott was the most strategic. And Scott also, being from Phoenix, knows how to cope in that weather really, really well. Um I, on, the, on the women's side, we had Claire, who'd been in Hawaii consider, like considerable amount of time and somewhat heat trained. But yeah, depending on the weather, um, it, it becomes a more tactical race, a more strategic race. Probably the more conservative race wins out um, in, in the hotter years, which I don't know, it'll be borderline this year. Like 70 is not cool. <laughs> it is not cool. And people, I think, underestimate the 70 degree in the in the desert in these kind of races, right? Because if you do like 70 degree in a more kind of maybe alpine kind of area, like where you kind of get some tree coverage and, you know, a little bit more yeah. wind, like it's yeah. uh, it's not as bad when people see it as like relatively comfortable. But even out here, and, and I live in Phoenix, like I would be running on the course and it would be 60 and I would feel pretty hot. Um, yeah. And so, and then you couple that with, you know, already going on 37 miles, like into the race where your heart rate might be a little bit more elevated. You might be a little dehydrated. Then you kind of have this like perfect concoction to have that 70 feel like a 90 maybe, um, which could be, is is, like you said, kind of crucial for people who aren't either used to the heat or haven't been sauna training um, or just, you know, are kind of underestimating what that 70 degrees actually feels like in the desert temps. Or yeah, so humidity heat versus dry heat mm-hmm. is uh, very deceiving. As someone who grew up in Missouri and still occasionally trains in Missouri, <clears throat> like you're you're wet, you're sweating, you know you're losing water um, in the Midwest, but or in any humid climate. Um, but in the desert, you evaporate it so quickly, and it's so much better at cooling you. Like your sweat's doing what you need, and then all of a sudden you're not sweating. All of a sudden you've lost all your sodium electrolytes and it hits you like a ton of bricks. And that that's probably like the biggest challenge that I had moving to a desert climate is just, I had no concept of the sodium needs, the electrolyte needs um, because you feel great until you don't. Whereas like humid mm-hmm. heat, you feel crappy the entire time. You're like, Oh, I still need to be drinking water. Cause I'm like overwhelmingly hot and I'm you know, borderline heat exhausted. So, I mean, anyone coming from a cooler climate, make sure you have a good dose of sodium. If it's 70 degrees, your sweat rate will be very high. You probably won't notice it. Start early, start often, get it in. Don't drink plain water, probably. Um, just be cautious with that. It's like dehydration, your blood plasma goes down, your volume, the blood volume goes down. 
you basically lose your power output and you're not circulating that blood. Yeah, your heart has to work harder. You feel like crap. That's another reason why people block or drop out at Black Canyon City mm-hmm. with such frequency. Such a good point. And it's, 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 I'm glad that you mentioned that too. Like, not just from the perspective of just racing, but a funny kind of like uh, anecdote is like I had Scott on. Um, Scott Trayer on the podcast after his Western States run last year. And on the episode, we were kind of just talking about like what he thinks, what we think, or, or I should say what he thinks is the most important thing for athletes to master down. And it was hydration. And he was kind yep. of talking about same things. You are hydration, sodium, even talking topical cooling. And we see that, you know, that's his big focus. And he ran one of the fastest times on the course last year to get a golden ticket, which kind of just like shows totally in line with you know what you're saying here for sure yeah i mean you can you can bounce back pretty easily from um like a nutrition deficit is much more challenging if you get um what hypo hyponatremic so of lack of your sodium and electrolytes like that takes considerably more time and effort to bounce back from it can be done but it's challenging and it's going to probably lead to a pretty poor race result so Dial yeah. in that hydration now and air on the side of excess when it comes to your electrolytes in the desert. That's good. That's a good tip too. And I think, I think the other thing that comes on to the hydration, I think hydration is more important than this, but like, I think also to the people know who to topical cool early as possible. Those are going to be the people who are really going to get out on top. And even like you see this at Javelina, which is always, or I should say most of the time, way hotter race, but still kind of same principles apply. Those who aren't just kind of blazing through those aid stations and like not taking the time to just continue to cool themselves, even if it's 50 degrees outside um, are the ones that just pay for it later. And I think this race historically, we see those first few aid stations kind of just get ripped through like crazy. And um, even I was talking with Scott again, I was running with him. I know I'm bringing him up a lot, but I do that because last year he he mastered this race, but exactly. uh, he, he was saying, he was like, he was like, I would suggest anyone to carry three bottles out there. He's like, no one's going to do it, but that's, that's and what he, it's going to really yeah. take to win. Yeah. He was saying something like two bottles an hour, um, just yeah. starts out pretty early. And I think that's dead on like, yeah, just. I don't know how big his bottles were. I think they were maybe the, were they the small 12 ounce ones, but I think so. Yeah. Need, I know there's a company called like Nix or Nixa that has mm. some sort, it's almost like the continual um, glucose monitoring, but it's for hydration. And I'm really excited to get that mainstream. I, I keep seeing it on more athletes. I know people are kind of testing it, but I feel like that's going to be a game changer in the ultra world when you have like continual hydration monitoring. I don't know what the accuracy of it is, but can you imagine understanding like down to like the ounce of your hydration needs in a race like this or any of these bigger ultra races that are hotter? Um, I think that's going to change the sport tremendously. And I'm, I want, I want to get my hands on one of them. Yeah. Is it like something that just like pings you if you're like just running low on like sodium levels or like just like electrolytes? it's um yeah it's kind of like smart watch technology i think so you you have i don't know if you've seen those glucose monitoring it's kind of a strip that sticks on your arm you see some of the pro athletes using them now um and i think it's sending you real-time feedback to smart watches so it would Mm. ping you with your i don't know if it's all smart watches or certain ones they partnered with um this is not sponsored by the way not a sponsor oh yeah no i'm not getting 
No. <laughs> I'm curious to see what this technology is in its completion and how well it works. Because I mean, if it if it popped up notifications in real time on a watch face and told you like the ounces um, of liquid needed, um, that would be really really convenient. So you could just match up. You're like, hmm, I need to drink like four ounces of this bottle now, and and then 15 minutes later, I need two ounces or whatever. Wow. I know, I know what I'm doing my research on after this. That sounds like insane. Pretty sure it's called Nix or Nixa. Nixa. I'm going to have to look it up. And when I look it up, I'll put the link in the, in the show notes for anyone to take a look as well, but that would be a game changer. Cause I think you manage the hydration, not just at like even black Canyon, but most races out there, especially like the summer competitive ones. That's an edge for sure. Um, any other kind of, I guess, factors that you think are really, really important um, for this race or things that maybe people don't think about as much that you think will really lead to success on a black Canyon course. Um, I'm trying to look through my notes. Um, well, I think I mentioned like the change in fuel needs after the downhill. Yeah. It's going to be really crucial that people make sure that they up their fuel intake after Bumblebee. Um, cause you've been cruising, you haven't been burning a lot. You're not hungry. And then all of a sudden you're like, Whoa, my energy levels are low. <laughs> so make sure you are still eating in that downhill, that 20 mile downhill section, eating maybe more than you think you need. So that once you get, you get hit with a pretty big climb right out of Bumblebee. It's always a little shocking after that descent. Um, And then it's kind of just undulating. It's not particularly difficult anywhere, but like your burn rate goes up substantially. So I I made that mistake last year. Um, We'll never do that again. I just, I, I was running or I was running a little hungry. I was like, man, I should have fueled more the first 20 miles. Other than that, I mean, depending on the type of runner, like shoe choice, there's a variety. I I've heard that some of the fastest times are in road shoes. I know hmm. Dominica ran in some Adidas road shoe led most of it last year. She ended up falling, I think with a few miles to go. So I don't know if that was because of the shoe or um, her fatigue. I also heard she was very dehydrated. But yeah, shoe choice is an interesting perspective. I went with a speed goat last year um, mm. because with that, it's just rocky, protects your foot. Um, I know your feet, not your foot. <laughs> I know True Heart wore a speed goat Evo. Um, I also know Scott wore a speed goat. So yep. I, I tend to like that shoe on the course just because you don't feel every single rock. There are a lot of little rocks and... I think a rock plate in your shoe is a good choice for this course. Um, I don't tend to think a road shoe is a good choice for this course. I actually ran 30 miles of the course in a Hoka mock, and that was the worst decision of my life. So I did Whoa. try running it in a road shoe just to feel that out and see what that was like. Would not recommend my feet hurt the next day. Um, but I guess if you're just an insanely talented technical runner and can fly over rocks, like some of the people that are coming to this course, you know what? Go with a minimal road shoe. That might be I might use it. Nick Curry, I'm sure, will be in Adidas road shoes. I can guarantee that. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah. I, we even saw him take out the Hyperfly at, uh, or the Vaporfly at Javelina. So he loves, he loves that road shoe out there and I'm sure he will. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned, cause I, I agree. I'm, I'm going to be wearing a Speedgo for the race. I'm going to be wearing a Speedgo yeah. five. That's what I've been training out there out there and I love it. Um, but that last section, I mean, just gets so chunky and technical and everything like yeah. that. And I think in a vacuum, if you're just kind of just doing, um, 
you know, 25 mile training run relatively fresher out there. It like you can get away with a road shoe, but when you, when that last 25 miles is your last 25 miles of an hundred K race, I think having that extra shoe support is going to be so beneficial, especially if you're, you know, maybe not feeling as alert and maybe you're just like not as kind of sharp on the dime as much and it's hotter. And so I think like to minimize the risk of, you know, getting some, you know, uh, bad falls or even just like having just extra throbbing feet that is going to be much more detrimental to you at the back end of a race than if you were on a training run. I think just having that shoe in there is going to mitigate a lot of those things because having that at the last end of the race, like that chunky technical rocky kind of part, um, I think is going to pay off in the end. I mean, I could see the benefit of maybe wearing like a road shoe in the beginning and then switching to trail, but like, yeah. do you really want to spend that try? Yeah. I would also say with the, with the water crossings, if you have a shoe that doesn't drain well, um, mm. possibly have an option to change your shoes you're going to have a water crossing before black Canyon, or if you're just someone who doesn't like to run in wet shoes, I can't stand wet shoes. Um, at black Canyon city. And then also at table Mesa, there's another water crossing there. Um, the table Mesa one right before, like the mile before there was pretty deep. There was no way to avoid like uh, shin deep water there. So like have that option if you want, or, or at Bumblebee, if you want to run the first part in road shoes and you think that you'll be more comfortable, um, never, never a bad idea to switch it out. I will also say, um, a lower drop shoe, I think is a safer mm. option for ankle rolls. Um, there is a lot of Rocky. I mean, it's just riddled with small rocks throughout the entire course. A lot of opportunity to roll your ankle. I know a lot of people personally who have had their days ended by ankle rolls. So, anything from like four mil and below is probably a safer bet. If you have someone, or if you're someone who struggles with ankle rolls, if you have problematic ankles, taping your ankles is not a bad idea either. It, it saved me uh, many times last year from day ending um, sprains. So just consider those things. Those, those could help you stay in the race and not have like a, a race ending ankle sprain. Two just incredible points there, right? Like the first on the uh, the water crossings, right? Like that, I think even for me, like, so I, I didn't, like I would watch the live streams, but even so, like I almost forget about it, like thinking that it's a yeah. desert race and everything like that. And, you know, you think, oh, there's no water in the desert, but like that water can get pretty high, as you mentioned before, yeah. eight feet at one point. And so you got to be able to go through that. And what comes through that is also foot care issues and blisters, uh, potentially getting in there a lot more. And then even just the comfortability factor. Like, um, I think it's like a whole nother variable that needs to be managed out there. Cause like you said, it could lead to some pretty drastic things. If you get like a big blister or like maybe yeah. you just, uh, don't get as comfortable and roll your ankle or something like, I mean, yeah, yeah, it's a huge variable. Yeah. You, cause you come out of that Creek by table Mesa and then you climb and it's just, yeah. I mean, I'm someone who likes to have dry shoes. It's like, you're already tired at that point. Even a couple ounces of water can make you feel heavy at that. So it's like, it never is a bad idea if it, you know, if it's coming down to those minutes, um, to get those spots, if you can change out your shoe in like 60 seconds and it helps you just run smoother and faster in those last sections, I think it's worth it. Obviously so everybody needs to weigh those pros and cons, um, stop time is stop time, but I think I'd some, it'd be something I would do, especially if you're wearing like a speed goat four, um, mm. hose 
hold water so bad. Like they, I swear they're like a half pound heavier. And that's what I was wearing last year. There was no water last year, but I would 100% have a shoe change if I was wearing the four because they're awful with drainage. Oh man. Wow. That's that. Yeah. That's an interesting point. The fives I've been wearing, they're, they're, they're decent with drain. Yeah. They drain better, but they, uh, I think another factor too, is that water is always freezing and you can kind of get this like lead foot kind of just like hard, like, yeah, it feels like you're just like running on like hard, just metal, like for a little bit, which always just kind of stinks, especially like, you know, uh, that one right after black Canyon city where you have to go up that climb like that, that can be pretty brutal. Like you take an ice bath and then just like try to run hard right after you take an ice bath. Hopefully they're lower. This was just what, two weeks ago? I mean, you can always look up the Agua Fria levels if you're concerned about this, monitor True. those from afar. <laughs> yeah, I remember like uh, when we had that like massive rainstorm, like, and then they had like that Black Canyon training run here. Everyone was like, oh my gosh, like send around the eight foot screenshot. Yeah. So it was it like, was uh, yeah. yeah, I was <laughs> like, like, I don't think is... we're crossing this. We're not going to swim this today. I'm going to turn around. <laughs> Yeah, I was like, this is uh this is taller than me. So taller than most people. This is uh kind of crazy. Um yeah, I think uh so I guess like with all that, I mean like we kind of covered the ins and outs of the course and everything. So I might as well just dive into our picks here, right? All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Everyday Ultra Podcast. As mentioned in the beginning of the episode, this is a part one of a two-part episode. And as you can see, kind of left you on a cliffhanger on that note there of going into our picks for Black Canyon. If you're interested in that, check out the episode released after this on whatever platform you're listening to. And that will go into the part two episode where Lindsay and I break down the picks for the 2023 race in terms of the women's and the men's field for who are racing at Black Canyon 100K. Hope you enjoyed this episode here. Looking forward to diving into the rest of Black Canyon with y'all. And remember, become a better endurance athlete every day. Take care.